You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. We watched every movie last year. We rated every kiss and every tear. We saw Tom Cruise sucking blood, Meg Ryan hit the booze. We saw 13 with you, Brent, and 7 by John Hughes. The critic is a mystery, no one knows why it fits, except for Jay Sherman, who always says... It stinks! (gasps) (laughs) How awkward. Hello and welcome to Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, an unofficial podcast looking at the 90s animated series The Critic, which starred the voice talents of John Lovitz, Maurice LaMarche, Nancy Cartwright, among others. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, hello. And uh, last week's episode was sort of a, a test run, sort of discussing, you know, how we learned about the cartoon and stuff. But this is the real first episode. And uh, as, as we promised on our Patreon page and so forth, um, we're going to look at the show episode by episode. So it's a limited run podcast. And we're looking at season one, episode one, which is simply titled uh, Pilot. Well, you say limited run, but for all we know, the, the critic could get a fourth season as we're recording. And then who knows how long we'll be on. Um, <clears throat> that's a long shot, but that's possible. It's happened twice before. Yes, it has happened twice before. So, um... Oh, let's start off giving a special thanks to Sean Franson and a very special thanks to Peter Monks. They donated on our Patreon campaign at the amount that gives them uh, thanks. Groovy. So, absolutely. And, um, yeah, on Twitter, we're at Critic Podcast. And if you go to uh, Facebook.com slash The Critic Podcast, we're on there as well. So still trying to get on iTunes. I haven't started that yet, but I need to start that process. It takes longer than it used to. Anyway, talk about season one, episode one of The Critic. I am amazed at how strong this pilot is. Yeah, for those who don't know, like the pilot is the first episode of a series that's made that then, um, you know, the showrunners shop around to the networks to try and sell it. And uh, pirates have a rep... Uh, pilots, I said pirates, that's not right. Well, pilots both, really. Have, yeah, have a reputation for for being bad um, because they have to set up the concept of the show and have a, have a storyline that kind of works and they're often kind of overloaded. But I agree, like this first episode of the Critic uh, might be one of the best of the whole series. It, it's surprisingly decent at juggling all those balls it has to juggle. Well, and like, and one other thing that amazes me about the show is what little exposition there is to set up the series and its concepts is so rapid fire and is always delivered as part of a joke. You don't even notice that you're being spoon-fed information that's going to pay dividends later later in the series. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, the series, the episodes are standalone, but some of their relationships uh, develop a bit, and it's quite a lot of, of characters um, you have here. I mean, the very first scene, it's between uh, Jay Sherman, played by John Lovitz, the titular critic who has a public access uh, show in new york no no it's not public access it's oh. uh it's basic cable it's basic cable that's right basic cable it's a step up from public access and uh doris his beloved um hairdresser 
And I believe, and one of the things that they set up <laughs> uh, in this episode that I, I've noticed, there's a lot of details that I've noticed in rewatching this series that I didn't notice the first time, such as the two, two things. One, they established that the critic makes uh, $270,000 a year, uh, which is <laughs> amount of, an amount of money I'd love to be making. Uh, and the other thing is that he's 36 years old. He looks much older than 36, I think, with the way they drew him, especially in this first season. Um, but, you know, I don't some people get get bald really young. Uh, I, I think the way how he looks kind of chubby, it's um, it's sort of stereotypical of film critics, although he doesn't have a beard. I think that's kind of noticeable. A lot of film critics have a facial hair. Oh, but he gets one later. Don't worry. <laughs> that's right. In the Iraq episode. Uh, yes. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, that's quite a bit uh, later. It's not till season two, I think. Spoilers. Yep. Um, but yeah. So you're introducing the character is pathetic. He's not likable. He he has hairspray from a can. He like cries out. He doesn't need it. And the last second, he's like, "Please, I need you need to give me the hair in the can." It's uh, I should mention Doris is voiced by uh, the late Doris Grossman. No, Doris Growl. Growl. Oh, I, I'm reading the wrong thing. The character's name is Doris Grossman. That's right, Doris Growl, who has um worked on a lot of films and TV shows, uh, including the Tracy Ullman show. Well, it's really fascinating because she was a script editor, but she had such a distinctive voice. She kept getting on-camera roles. She has a bit part in The Distinguished Gentleman, which she did script editing for. She was a script editor on The Simpsons, which is how she got the job doing Lunch Lady Doris on The Simpsons for uh, really up until she died. Yeah, and I understand the design of her character Doris in The Critic looks a lot like how she looked in real life. Um, was, yes, it was, does. Was based by that, so that's some trivia for you. But um, even from the beginning, they they do a good job of setting up the um, conflict between Jay Sherman and his boss Duke Phillips, who's voiced by Charles Napier. And you you hear Charles Napier in this, and he's he's had a fascinating career. He's in Silence of the Lambs. He's in an original series Star Trek episode. It really is a crime he didn't do more comedy because the. He plays he plays this this Ted Turner ish character perfectly straight and and yet every line out of his mouth is a brilliantly timed gag. It, it is amazing how well he executes the comedy in this. Yeah, I mean the character looks much like Ted Turner with the with the mustache, and there's a lot of physical comedy where he has this great physicality to him that you wouldn't guess from the voice. The, the other thing I love about this is this is also the, the Critic is a very quotable series, and I quote it all the time. And this is in this pilot is probably my most quoted quote uh, when he gives a quick interview to People magazine, and the interviewer just lists off all these amazing things about him and asks how that feels, and he just says, "I have no one to envy. I mm. envy you for having me to envy." That's a brilliant line. He has a lot of lines that are like that, where they sound profound, but they don't they don't mean that much. But he, he's certainly a character that's he's a bit like Donald Trump, I guess, in that way. He's not lacking for confidence. Hey, speaking of which, there's a reference to uh, Donald Trump in this episode, which, depending on when and where you're listening to this, could be a hilarious throwaway line or a grim harbinger of the hellscape that is this earth. What was the Trump joke? I don't recall that one. Uh, well, la- later on, when we get into... Um, Jay's uh, relationship with the actress Valerie Fox, uh, she's talking about her background and she says, you know, and she, she sort of lists things that are in her past. And one of the things she mentions is, yes, I dated Donald Trump. And she does this big air quotes gesture. <laughs> 
Oh, and then there's also that gag uh, about when he's taking her around New York, and in the background, there's a Trump Tower with a foreclosure sign. <laughs> no. Sure, yeah. I mean, he's had a lot of failed uh, um, business attempts in the years and stuff. Let's talk about Trump steaks, Trump vodka. Let's not give him stuff. any free advertising. Uh, I- I'm going to bring this back. If we're going to mention products on the show, we should be able to wet our beaks a little. Fair enough. Um yeah, and so you mentioned, that's a good thing to segue, Valerie Fox is his romantic interest. And that's one thing that really separates this first season of The Critic from the second season. And that um, he, he's a single man in the first season. And it's not like he dates a new girl every episode, but it kind of seems like it. That's something they tend to lean on for a plot. Yeah, he he, he, date, he dates around a bit. They they are free in this first season to let him explore relationships. And that was considered controversial at the time, believe it or not. Well, they mentioned that in the audio commentary that, like, uh, shortly after th- this episode aired, which I don't believe this was the first episode that aired. I believe it aired later down the line. But they got all these, uh, they got these, the, all these letters, and it was mostly hate mail for people who were aghast at the fact that Jay Sherman uh, had had sex with a woman that he had only known for less than twenty four hours. Because that doesn't happen in real life. Yeah, I mean it's. I think it's because even the the evening uh, animated show was a, a pretty new thing. You, yes, you had The Simpsons, but that was like a, a, a family unit. You had these weird things like Fish Police. I think they're kind of exploring the boundaries of what you could do. You did not have Adult Swim. Uh, you didn't have Cartoon Network. You didn't, you know, it, this wasn't like an anime or something where it was more action and violent. Um, they, they were trying to do, I think, a more mature kind of comic and more uh, comedy and a more mature uh, storyline. Well, it's also, it's very, it's very sophisticated. It's also very grounded. The the film is grounded in a very, in in this New York reality that existed, the film, the show, it was grounded in a New York reality that existed at the time. Uh, And being grounded allowed the film parodies that just popped up around Jay Sherman to have more impact. Well, when you mentioned New York of the time, that that's important too. I mean, this show is in '94, and even even things like Times Square were, were still kind of a shithole. I mean, like there's a, the nice grime, there's a grime, a lovable griminess to New York in this series, and and it comes across in those wonderful painted backgrounds that this series uses. Or heck, we didn't even mention you know the the theme song sequence is a lovely bit of animation. The theme song is composed by Hans Zimmer, who you might know for doing music for uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. And it has and, this and, perfect Gershwin kind of rhapsody yeah, in blue sort of feel, yeah, just a quintessentially New York song. I'm sorry, Mr. Sinatra. Yeah, it's it it it's it's a it's a witty sort of piece of music. It's um. Not as bombastic as The Simpsons. It lets you know you're in for something a little bit different. Uh, so and th- th- that's that's good to see. It also gives plenty of space for them to do uh, to do uh, quick gags as part of the intro, such as the 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 wake up phone call that Jay gets every episode, the shot of the panda that are the pandas that are a perfect mirror for Jay and his son, and then ending uh, ending with a quick 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 blink and you'll miss it film parody. I think one thing before we get more into the plot with Valerie Fox is uh, we should go into more of the characters. I mean, not only is there Jay Sherman's work life with the you know Duke Phillips and, and Doris, but there's his his personal life. He's divorced. Uh, he has a son, Marty Sherman. Marty Sherman. Um, and he also has a. Um, we has two friends. 
Uh, yeah, a few friends. He has. Um, you want to talk about his friends? Well, yeah, he has two friends. His he had his his good positive relationship is with uh, an Australian actor, uh, Jeremy Hawk, who is, you know. Clear, clearly, it's it's meant to be inspired by Paul Hogan. Al- although the more I look at it, the more I feel like today he could he could work perfectly with. Uh, I can't. I always forget this man's name. The Wolverine guy. Oh, Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, because he is he is this like kind of goofy Australian guy who keeps playing these dramatic dramatic roles and blockbuster roles, uh, even if he's not necessarily appropriate for for it. And one of the the running gags that gets established is that the movie that made him a star was a movie called Crocodile Gandhi, where he plays an Australian version of Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> but for the ladies, a tasteful look at me bottom. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Maurice Lamarche voiced Jeremy Hart. Hawk, and it should be noted, Maurice LaMarche did a lot of the parody voices in the show, but so did Nick Jameson. And, oh, uh, yes. Nick, Nick Jameson plays a regular in the show, the owner of the restaurant Lane Ritchie um, that they tend to eat at. I think it's Elvata or something. Uh, his, his name is uh, uh, his name is Vlada Viramirovich. Vlada Viramirovich, yes. I was trying who is to write a, that down just from hearing it. Who is a uh, caricature of the uh, animation producer uh, Gabor Chupo. Huh. I didn't know that. Interesting. Well, yeah, if, if you actually watch a lot of animation that was coming out in that time, uh, he had a hand in a lot of, uh, of animation. He produced a lot of the animation for The Simpsons. He produced a lot of uh, animation for Nickelodeon, particularly Rugrats, uh, Rugrats and yeah, Doug. Yeah. And in just about every, every show he did in this, he was such – because apparently he himself is kind of an overblown character. Uh, in all of these shows, at some point, they always work in a funny foreign gentleman – that is a that is a caricature of uh, of Gabor Chupo. Doctor Nick is uh, based on him, huh? In addition to all this stuff, pretty interesting. Um, and and he's more of a toxic relationship. I mean, he he freely admits uh, is that he he only he only loves uh, Jay. He's only a friend with Jay Sherman because of Jay Sherman's money. But it is a friendship and a love that will never die. <laughs> Jay's son Marty is voiced by uh, Christine Cavanaugh who is um, perhaps best known as voicing Chucky in Rugrats. She also did the voice of Babe uh, only in the first Babe movie. It was a different character, uh, voice actress for the second one. Um, and I think the relationship between Jay and his son, it's it's sort of sweet. I mean, it, it kind of reflected something that was more of a reality at the time in the 90s where you had more people, their parents being divorced was not such an uncommon thing, and they would go and just see their dad on the weekends. Um there's also the big subplot going through the series that they touch on a little bit in this episode, more so later on, and that his ex-wife is just crazy. Oh, yes. And it was the ex-wife, I believe, was played by uh, Judith Ivey? I think that's right. Yeah, she... We'll, we'll 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 get into her later, but I I really do like Jay's relationship with his son. It's it's very touching. I like I love I love that. Uh, you know, when when Marty's introduced, uh, he's like talking about all the activities that they had planned for the weekend. Like, we were going to go to that ice cream parlor, and you're going to tell him it was my birthday again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I just love these little these little things that that for Jay are kind of shady, but for him, it's just kind of a delightful part of his childhood. You also get one of many cameos from Gene Shalit when they're eating in the restaurant. Where yes. he says, uh, I wrote this down, even Satan himself would love this angel hair pasta. It's a good buy. And so, goodbye from Mr. Good Guy, Gene Shalit. And then he just skitters away. 
Yes. I love that. Like, that's brilliant to have Gene Shalit play himself. And even today, I think Gene Shalit is an obscure reference. Right. I mean, was it Good Morning America or something he was on? But, like, his look with the mustache and the hair is very distinctive. And he would always do these crazy puns in his reviews. They 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 weren't really puns. They were oddly Uh, structured sentences that might rhyme. Yeah, yeah. It was was very peculiar to Gene Shalit. Um but they did capture it. Well, actually, I love that because there's that bit where they're sat in the critics section and there's that long pan and we keep getting like snippets of what the critics are mumbling to themselves. The line that I love in that is when the guy goes, Pelican brief, more like turkey too long. <laughs> and that is that is a joke that has not aged well because I don't know anyone who remembers the Pelican brief. I do, but I don't know anyone who does. I remember Pelican brief was a movie based on a John Grisham novel. But um, I don't recall see, ever seeing it before. Um, so yeah, it was, they did a lot of John Grisham stuff in the '90s. So there you go. Um, I mean, there's also the other main characters that get introduced in this pilot. We've mentioned a lot already. Is Jay's um, family? Ah, uh, yes, his uh, Franklin and Eleanor Sherman. Yes, and his sister Margot, and that's one of one of my favorite bits of exposition. When because uh, they pull up in front of this mansion, and as they're walking up to the front door, Jay leans over to Valerie and says, "Before I introduce you to my parents, there's something you should know." And the door opens, and it's his parents. And Eleanor just says, "Hello, son," and she goes, "Oh, you're adopted." <laughs> <laughs> she can just tell. But then they don't let that stand because the very first line out of the butler when they're all sitting down for dinner, good evening, adopted Master Jay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a mean joke, but it's something like they always rub in his face every time. Um, he, he tends to resent his family, especially his, his mother, as we'll see in an upcoming episode. Oh, yes. But it's, it's, it's really something. It's, it's a weird... Very, very dysfunctional. I mean, if you thought The Simpsons was dysfunctional, at least it was a cohesive family union. This this one, you know, the it's, it's clear he's adopted. They could have gone the easy route and have his parents be Jewish like he is and had him, you know, have similar characters designs. Instead, they went completely off in a different direction. Well, that's that's one of the things I love is that they are dysfunctional, but they're dysfunctional in this very particular waspy sort of way. Which works mm-hmm. so well. And I just love how, how frank they are. You know, Soon you'll break his heart, and then Jay will be back with one of those nice girls from the escort service. Which <laughs> that, that itself is also like a dark joke you wouldn't expect to see on primetime, even today. Well, and his, his father is just, all his lines are non-secretors. He, he almost never makes sense except to himself. He's like, the peanut is neither a pea nor a nut. Oh, oh wait. wait, it is a nut. <laughs> well, no, and it's a great, and I love that. I love that they right off the bat address it. You know, you have to forgive my father. He had a stroke a few years ago, and then his mother leans in. He didn't really. We just say that to explain away his odd behavior. <laughs> mm. Son, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Who are you people? Yeah, it's it's just really a, a fresh take on, on the family. Um, but yeah, why don't we talk about the plot? We talked about the characters a bit overall that introduced in the pilot. And as you mentioned, Valerie Fox is the main sort of plot here. It's an actress that 
wants to date him so uh, she can get a good review. Well, that's the thing, though, is that they leave that hanging until the end because at, at the beginning, you know, she, he's interviewing her on his show because her first movie is coming out in a month, and they have a connection. And the, most of the episode is them having a very full, fulfilling relationship that everyone assumes is fake. The only one who has faith in it is is Jay and supposedly Valerie. It's not until the very last moment, the very last possible, most heartbreaking moment, that we find out that she was, in fact, lying and that it was all to get him to give her a good review. Do you think that plot works pretty well? I, I think... I think it does, it, it, but it does bring up it does bring up one one interesting point uh, is because that apparently when she's face to face with you, she's the most convincing actress in the world. But once she's on camera, she is horrible. I mean, when her, the only scene we see in her movie is her coming into a room and saying, "I'll give you a kiss, all right, a kiss of death." Yeah, and it looks like in that movie Kiss of Death, the male char- character looks like Charles Bronson. <laughs> they have a thing, you know. Can you tell me about your movie? I play an actress who seduces chubby men and then kills them. Yeah, it's almost a bit of a fatal attraction sort of tease with that line. Which actually, can I offer some praise? The actress who plays uh, Valerie is Jennifer Lean, who would go on to play Kess in Star Trek Voyager. She is amazing. Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the Gathering. Come along and play! Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance to her performance. Um, and I think it, it should be noted that the music in the series by um, Alf Clausen is is really good, and he does a good job making you know romantic music where he's looking into her eyes and he's sort of uh, taken away um, with her. The the Beauty and King Dork number oh. I, it is funny... But I don't think it dates as well as it did at the time. I mean, at the time, it, you know, it's a takeoff on the Beauty and the Beast sequence. It, it would have been a very expensive sequence because it had a lot of, it did the same sort of CG move they did in the Disney cartoon where the camera spins around and yes. dancing. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the things that's so amazing in this pilot is that that is, that is a level of animation that you just did not see on TV. Uh, there, I, be, I believe the fully computer animated show reboot had been on by this point. But to have the critic in its pilot episode go from 2D anima- to traditional cell animation to full 3D in a wonderful parody of the Disney 3D ballroom Beauty and the Beast dance sequence and to have the 2D elements and the 3D elements match up so well is an amazing technical achievement. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh it's something but you know instead of having like the the candlestick same that's like the dustbuster in the toilet. The, yes, what, what, wonderful to have the two least romantic items in your home <laughs> participate in this musical number. Um, what's your favorite joke in the episode? Oh gosh, my favorite, my favorite joke. This is like going to be unusual for me because it's the quietest little thing. But it's probably when uh, Jay and Valerie are out walking around New York, and she says. 
Jay, there's something I want to tell you. I love you. And he grabs a megaphone from a police officer and says, I, I do too. And he says through the megaphone, I love you. Because like, he wants everyone to hear it. And then the camera pans back and there's a guy about to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. And he just sniffs and goes, that's all I needed to hear. And he yeah. goes inside and he closes the door. I just, I love, I, for a show that can be very dark and cynical, I love, I love that moment. I love that Jay professing his love uh, saves a life. I like a joke that's uh, about a flashback with patches <laughs> where they're, they're going out for a, a horse ride, you know, um, Margot and Valerie, Margot and Valerie, right? Cause Jay doesn't want to be on the horse and they're asking why. And they do a flashback of when he was little, he went on a, a little pony named patches and they're asking, do you weigh less than 80 pounds? And he's like, uh, yes. And as soon as he does, you hear this like spine cracking sound effect <laughs> and a scream. no, patches and then it goes to present day brilliantly and you see um the the sister and valerie go by a gravestone of patches oh yeah that that's one of that's one of those gags that does not end they keep adding layers to it and the other thing i love about that is that the stable hand who we see in the flashback is still their stable hand and whenever you see a stable hand in the series it's that same guy but at different ages, as appropriate to whatever time period his scene is set in. Now, I do have to a- ask you, this this won't be the first time this comes up on the show, but I know this had to have an influence on you, but the Woody Allen gag. What did you think of that? <laughs> I don't think I got it when I first watched it as a kid. Um, I'm not sure I did either. <laughs> but in reruns, I got it. It's It's funny. It's okay. I don't know. I think I like... Other Woody Allen jokes better. It seems sort of the easy joke to go for. Um, can you re- remind us what the joke is? Well, we see uh, at the at the end of the episode when uh, Valerie breaks up with Jay Sherman and he's begging, trying to get her back. Uh, she walks away. We see a bunch of other people start walking behind Jay, trying to get their girlfriends back. There's a guy saying he's going to give up drinking. There's a guy saying he's going to give up gambling. And then we see this Asian woman walk by being followed by Woody Allen. He goes, Sun Yi, please forgive me. I swear. I didn't know she was your sister. Yeah, um, and despite that joke, John Lovitz later worked with Woody Allen in Small Time Crooks. Oh, that's right. And that's after having impersonated Woody Allen for years on SNL. That's right. Yeah, but they end up throwing in a lot of Woody Allen jokes (laughs) as the series progressed. Why don't we talk about um, some of the movie references in this show? You had um, a good one with Family Affair, the movie, starring Marlon Brando. Uh, Yeah, which is one of the many things that came true uh, between then and now. Uh, Family Affair was remade as a uh, high-profile television series with Tim Curry as Mr. French. It didn't last very long, and um, it it wasn't very good either. Uh, But yeah, you have Crocodile Gandhi, as you mentioned, setting up... um, the, uh, setting Jeremy up uh, Jeremy Hawk and Jeremy his Hawk, movies. That's right. And um, Home Alone Five, which is like I feel like that's on the verge of coming true. Like, if, if you remember from the sequel cast, there were four Home Alone movies, and we did them all. Yeah, there's actually five now. Um, oh God, it did come true. 
Yeah, they did a fifth one. Malcolm McDowell plays one of the crooks. Um, I believe they they did not make the mistake of Home Alone four and tried to cast someone else as Kevin McAllister. It's a, it's just a different family that happens to get robbed. Um, well, but so, robbed by a very sophisticated Englishman. Apparently so. Um, we have Rabbi Pi. That's one they use again in the clip show episode. Oh, that is it's, that is so wonderful. Like Rabbi Pi, it's it's just a great gag to have Arnold Schwarzenegger as uh, as a Hasidic rabbi, and they they milk it for every possible gag. And and yet, I think I would like to see this movie now. Schwarzenegger seems to have enough of a sense of humor about his career that if you approached him with a action movie parody where he plays a rabbi, I think he'd do it. I'd kind of like to see it. Yeah, you know, he did do that mix in the um in in this part when the show came out in the nineties of doing like sort of more family friendly films and then going back to doing action films. Jingle all the way, stands Jingle out. Jingle all the way. Yeah. So I mean it's not out of the question that he would have done something like Rabbi P. I. Um although I'm kind of horrified by the idea they're trying to get a Twins three made starring Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, and Eddie Murphy. Was so. there a Twins two? No, I guess Twins Two is what I meant. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. So, um, and uh, the Seinfeld gag at the end, I think, is another one that was topical. It's topical, but it actually it still works. But it doesn't so much work as a parody as simply a an exact animated reproduction of a moment from Seinfeld. Yeah, the, you even get uh, Kramer sliding in through the door at the end. No, the, apropos of nothing. The part that I like though was Marty's comment. Like, why aren't you laughing, Dad? This is the way people actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> which which I, I don't I don't know if you remember, but that was that was an asinine thing people were saying about the show at the time. And this was also before Seinfeld was the biggest show in the world. Uh, this was, I think, right before it really hit it big. Yeah, because uh, the this, this show originally aired in uh, late January in 94 in the United States. So very good. Well, I think we've done a good job talking about this episode. You also mentioned this is one of the episodes that has an audio commentary. Yes. And um, I, one thing they mentioned in the commentary that, that jumped out to me is uh, there was a story of a film critic. They didn't reveal who, who. There was some Dustin Hoffman movie that he said he loved and loved. And he wanted to have to do like a spend three days with Dustin Hoffman and do a big feature in this about what it's like hanging out with Dustin Hoffman to help promote the movie. And Dustin Hoffman wrote back and said he wasn't interested at all. And then this critic proceeded to trash the Dustin Hoffman movie. <laughs> yes, and, that is a fascinating story. They they do they do tell, they do drop bits about that of critics they talk to and like things that they got right because there's a there's a, another running gag throughout the series that they really hit hard in this episode that a lot of the things that Jay owns are swag uh, given out to promote. Uh, to promote movies such as like a t-shirt that says my own private Idaho, uh, a, a purple bathrobe that says the color purple, things like that. And as I understand it, if you work in Hollywood, that just happens. You just end up with swag. Well, I recall. Yeah, and um, I know I've got lots of games industry swag. Yeah. When you go to any convention, you get a lot of that. But I remember I, I would go uh, in college to review some films for the college paper. And like one of them was Monkey Bone. Remember that? This sort oh, of live yeah. action stop motion thing. Yeah. And they gave us t shirts and hats and like pants. Like it was every piece of thing imaginable for this movie that was a big flop and I don't think they ever sold that merchandise in stores. <laughs> 
but it's yeah, it's just one of those things. I think one of the jokes in the critic is he has a pair of boxers that says backdraft on the back. Yeah, he actually he has several. He has one that says backdraft. He has another that says shaft. He has a, a sock that says my left foot. And uh, another one yeah. that says Tootsie. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a nice running gag in the critic. Uh, now let's go to our next segment. What the hell are they doing? Talking about something current some of the cast of the critic is, is doing right now. One thing uh, I read that, that came up is a, a Disney um, CG feature, Zootopia, was just released. Uh, yes, yes. It came out a few days ago as of this recording. Good. Open number one at the box office. I haven't seen it. I understand it's pretty good, but Maurice LaMarche plays a shrew version of Don Corleone named Mr. Big in the film. Huh. And and a few reviews, uh, Hollywood Reporter in particular pointed out his great performance. So Maurice LaMarche is everywhere, but to see him uh, play a voice in a big screen animated feature is is nice to see. That is very cool. I'm I'm considering checking that out. And if I do, you will, of course, hear about it here. Let's go to our final segment, It Stinks, where we talk about a movie that we've seen that, you know, either, like, wasn't that good or was poorly reviewed or something. Basically, what are we watching, but with a stint on sort of trashy stuff? Well, mine would have to be Rekill. What is Rekill? Well, it's a it's a film. You can see it on certain streaming services right now. Uh, it's it's a zombie movie, but the the premise behind it, the conceit behind it, is that what you're watching is a sort of reality TV show, a show kind of like Cops, but instead of following around police officers, it follows around this extermination squad that hunts down and kills zombies before they can infect people. Uh, and there's commercial breaks and like news bits where they like show they showcase products that exist in this world and first and and, and foremost it takes itself way too seriously uh we also saw these kinds of commercial breaks in the japanese zombie movie stacy and they were much more fun in the movie stacy and then the other thing uh they do that really 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 this ticks me off just about any time it happens but they never once use the word zombies. They have to come up with their own cool name, and the cool name for zombies uh, are Rians, which is just a stupid name. We have a name for what these things are. Why aren't we just calling them that? Oh, Rians as in short for reanimator? Yeah, it's short for re- the reanimated, yeah. The other thing, the other thing it does wrong is is that there's a lot, there's lots of like information that's slipped in through dialogue, except that the movie keeps reminding you how their zombies work. It doesn't lay it all out in the opening scenes. It seemed it's every scene, it's like somebody reminds you how the zombies work, and it's stuff that you already know because you saw it in the opening scene. Yeah. But yeah, it, re- it really irks me when when a when a movie, TV show, comic book, novel, what have you, has zombies in it, but they don't just call them zombies. They have to give them a jazzy name. Yeah, I mean, in the same way it annoys me in shows where they can't curse, so they make up a curse word, and then they use it way too much. Yeah, sometimes, well, when they use it way too much, absolutely. There there are rare instances where that works. I think I, I think the, sw- the nonsensical swearing in Chinese and Firefly work. Sci-fi does a lot of this. Uh, the swear words in... Uh, in Farscape worked because they used them consistently and you could tell what the words meant and what they were, subst- what they were substituting. Um, I mean, the one that drove me nuts was in Battlestar Galactica. They used frack a lot. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that, sort of I think cheesy. 
the thing that bothered me about frack is that when they start using it, it doesn't seem to be sexual, but then it turns out that that is in fact sexual and that broke it for me. Hmm. I just got taken out of it because it sounded like uh, another word and <laughs> it's, it, it's too close to the word. I think part of, you know, Firefly it being in Chinese or something is I have no, nothing to associate with that. You know, it makes it seem more exotic. But yeah, like I, I always, I always felt like it would have been better if, if frack was like literally short for fracture, which is the last thing you want to have happen in a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. A bit more clever. Um, one thing, now this is something that's supposed to be bad. I've never seen it, um, but it's coming out on DVD for the first time in May. Cop Rock. That was a TV show, wasn't it? It was a TV show, yes. It was not a movie. But Cop Rock is coming out finally May 17th, 2016. Yeah, wasn't it like a 1980s uh, new wave police procedural musical? Uh, yes, it was uh, 1990 is when it came out. It's never come out on DVD. It's finally getting released from the, our friends at Shout Factory. They do good work. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. I've always meant to see this show. I, I've seen clips of like, you know, weird one season one-offs or whatever. And uh, I'm not expecting it to be good, but it makes me very curious. And I'm somewhat glad uh, in these days where there's not a whole lot of physical media uh, around that there's enough of a demand for them to release Cop Rock. <laughs> well, I mean, you can do you can do limited runs, and and it does uh, Cop Rock does, as I understand it. I know it mainly by reputation, but it has a, a kind of cult following. That's right. So that's something I'm excited to see. I'll have to do more of my due diligence and watch something um, bad for next week's episode. <laughs> But don't worry, I'm sure I will find something abysmal to talk about next week. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I have a copy of Blade Trinity coming in the mail. So maybe Ooh, we'll talk about that. Good choice. Um, yep. So for Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, this is Matt Bradley Shergi. And this is William T. Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at MattWBT. Uh, talk to us about the show on Twitter at Critic Podcast. And um, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thecriticpodcast. What's your Twitter handle, Thrasher? You can find me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. I am still the reigning mayor of the Internet. And I would like to mention if you'd want to, you know, contribute some some money to help Shekels, yeah, to help go towards the show, I started a Patreon at patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. That's patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, and come back next week in which we'll talk about episode two. Uh, for those who are, who are wondering, we're following the orders of the episodes as they're listed on the DVD. Which was the, in which was the intended, intended order, not the order that the network uh, showed them in, but we will talk about that as we get to those vastly out-of-order episodes. Right, so that second episode is titled Miserable for those who are following along at home. <laughs> Another one of my favorites. Absolutely. Good night. The show's over. You're going to have to leave the theater. Get away, zit face.